So before we begin, this is a podcast about terrorism, which does mean that we do talk about acts of terrorism and extreme violence. So you may find some of the following materials upsetting. Hello, I'm Fatma Ahmed, your host and guide in this series of Taking Apart Terror, the West Africa edition. Together, we'll analyze the realities of violent extremism in West Africa and delve into the local, regional and international efforts and initiatives to prevent and counter violent extremism. In today's episode, we'll be looking at how is terrorism funded in the Lake Chad Basin? And joining me as we unpack this topic is Chanya Laki, counter-terrorism financing expert, and Dr. Shikudi Njoku, conflict researcher and peace builder from Nigeria. So let's get started. So Chanya, you recently spoke at the joint opening briefing at the Counterterrorism Committee, where you spoke to some of the issues and trends relating to how terrorism is funded in the region. It would be great to get your perspective on this topic and specifically the general financing trends of ISWAP. Certainly. Thank you, Fatma. Uh, In understanding and analyzing ISWAP and its funding, it is imperative to note when people think of terrorism financing, most think of it as a cost associated with launching an attack. But it is key to remember that ISWAP and terrorist organizations in general exist in the world as we do. Uh, They have dependents, families, they need housing, food, etc. Terrorist organizations need money for salaries to fund their fighters, ETC. ISWAP in recent times have relied on guerrilla tactics in their activities. So attacking military and police bases, attacks on Christian communities, uh, kidnapping and raids, uh, prison breaks. Thus, targets are carefully selected um, to save cost and, and maximize impact. This means executing a terror attack in this manner are not expensive. But drawing in on the major expenses that could likely be, you know, salaries, ISWAP has grown in strength. Um, and appears to be the largest of the ISIS um, ISIL affiliates in Africa with approximately about 4,000 to 5,000 members. To put this in context, and particularly from a financing model, using an example of ISIL in Somalia, for example, and the salary structure there, it was reported to be at the time around $80 per month for a married fighter and $40 per month for a single fighter. For purposes of this example, if using an average of 4,500 fighters, um, let's say, for example, half married, half um, single, $270,000 per month on salary alone. And that does not include other operational costs, armory, intelligence procurements, mobile phones, ETC. And coming back to monetary benefits to fighters, the ability of a terrorist group to pay salaries is key, particularly in a climate where there are numerous actors and groups, um, such as in West Africa and the Sahel. And fighters have been reported to leave groups due to the inability to be paid salaries, with some affiliates luring recruits, you know, on the promises of loans. Therefore, liquidity is imperative to their survival. And it is for this reason that when the report from ECOWAS, which stated ISWAP, has been reported to be generating an income as high as $36 million, for Adam, you realize it's not that much, you know, vis-a-vis operational costs. And in determining where this $36 million comes from, uh, we know that ISWAP is self-financing. And any ongoing support from ISIL Core is that which is operational strategy and, of course, associated media and social media propaganda. There are reports, however, in 2017 that ISWAP received financial support from ISIL Core, which was likely to be disseminated around 2015 to 2016. 
um, which would have served as an inaugural seed funding, which was likely to assist ISWAP whilst establishing itself independently from Boko Haram and may have suffered some financial strain and therefore needed support. The territory that ISWAP has staked out appears to be divided into two. The group, um, the power, of course, is, is greatest in the core territory on the banks and the islands of Lake Chad Basin. Um, it has permanent bases there and directly governs civilian um, settlements. Beyond this, and in the wider area in which it projects its influence, is via patrols, emissaries, and sympathizers. And that it, like takes across and they crisscross across significant parts of Lake Chad Basin in and out. Um, this territorial control and reach under these two divides provides opportunities to tax, impose the cards on occupants, civilians under its territorial control, or through checkpoints, extortion, ex um, exerting tolls on drivers, deploy protection rackets, and so on. Another element we have seen with ISWAP is that they also extend to microloans for youth and, and farmers within their area of control, which means they generate an extra profit under the disguises of their benevolence. So in as much as they generate significant funding from their territorial control and reach and post, they will take advantage of other opportunities. And to this end, we have seen sale of goods and other lucrative activities, you know, selling at inflated prices, some individuals supporting through SIM cards and mobile phones, contributions from members, unclear whether ISWAP deployed the same tactic as Boko Haram in this instance, but likely it does, and it was derived from a treasurer of Boko Haram that voluntary and mandatory donations are made by members of our Boko Haram, um, begging, so arms collection, arms smuggling, kidnapping for ransom, cattle wrestling, you know, raiding of, of local markets. I think it's imperative to note that as CFT practitioners, we not only look at how money is raised, but of equal importance is how it's moved, how it's stored, and what it is used for. And all these stages provide opportunities for disruption. In movement, it is identified that, you know, they have predominantly used, you know, women and children as cash couriers through emissaries, through physical cash, through smuggling. There's evidence to show cash deposits and structuring through banks. This means, you know, small amounts um, to avoid detection um, through bank thresholds, money value transfers as well. In terms of concealing, given Nigeria is a financial hub, you know, we can see a lot of the money trickling down. And, and also we see that we can make an informed analysis that reinvestment and concealing would be in businesses such as transportation, real estate. Cryptocurrency has been an area of concern that's shared by the Nigerian authorities. And as I conclude on this point, um, and to answer your question, Fatma, all of this, of course, is facilitated by the unique opportunities which the Lake Chad Basin provides. And namely, you know, it's the same currency, you know, Cameroon, Chad and Niger communities that share the borders with northern Nigeria, most commonly use the Naira rather than the CFA franc. And, and this means that, you know, trade remains centered on and, and dominated by the Nigerian um, currency. Historically, these are people who, you know, the territories and, and immediately surrounding Lake Chad have historically, you know, had relations of trade, migration, familial um, relations, and even after states created in, in Africa, transborder interactions and movements in, in the region remain fluid. Then, of course, low governance and isolation, you know, also presents its, its opportunity and it's easier to control and seize control. So it's all these enabling environments also exasperate um, the opportunities when it comes to terrorism financing. No, very informative, Shani, and you touched upon so many, so many aspects. And just coming back to your point around the enabling environment, we've read and, and learned about how ISWAP, you know, strategically exploits 
uh, precious metals and so on, in particular gold uh, in the region. And it would be great um, if you can also touch upon a bit more how are they currently exploiting the use of minerals and extractives in their financing model as well? You know, tariffs are limited to the options um, within the location, the markets of their control, reach, influence, access that they provide. And they'll always opt for opportunities which are sustainable, accessible, and expedient. They also opt for strategic exploits, you know, which would take them out of their area of control, such as oil and minerals or literal states. And gold is certainly one. It's easy to mine. And, you know, like diamonds, it's highly fungible and easy to smuggle. And this accounts for its attractiveness, especially for illicit miners. And of course, gold has a high economic value and strategic importance. And gold has become one of the most routinely smuggled commodities in Nigeria. And before I expound more on that, you know, we cannot ignore the presence of oil. For ISWAP to take advantage of this presence of oil, they would need more systemized and complete control of the area um, and under a similar regime as ISIL core in Syria. So you know, ISIL long-term ambitions are uncertain, but, but for now, its focus is clearly on consolidating and extending its networks rather than trying to establish undisputed territorial control over larger areas. But back to gold in the same region um, within northwest Nigeria, which hosts large untapped alluvial gold, lead, tin, um, and zinc, it presents exploitative opportunities for ISWAP and also opportunities which late Chad Basin has provided. Gold is similarly provided. So gold is currently carried out, you know, legally and artisanal with a strong estimation of about 80% of mining in the region. But focusing on Zamfara State, illegal mining has been identified as one of the underlying causes of, you know, the region's conflict, noting up to millions of dollars worth of deposits have been smuggled out of the region. So if ISWAP were to position itself as it has done in the basin and provide protection from the organized rural bandit trees, this would present a low effort um, source of revenue, you know, as ISWAP could set up checkpoints and demand payments and or run protection rackets along the route. And there are reports in 2022 that they have been identified terrorist organizations and terrorist groups and, and actors within some of the conflicts in that area. But it's hard to ascertain who is who and who belongs to what group. It's not so far-fetched, and particularly because if you look at ISWAP and its ally, um, you know, the Islamic State of the Greater Sahara, who's deeply engaged with partaking with the full production of artisanal gold mining. So from mining the gold to selling it to the gold traders to taxing the gold traders and providing auxiliary security to select mines in their territory. It's not far-fetched to consider that best practices are shared between the group, as they are currently being reported to be doing, and that ISWAP will not be partaking in this lucrative exploit. So with the relationship with the ISGS, they can certainly assist ISWAP um, in smuggling and especially in, and also with their knowledge and the established knowledge in this area. And they are already playing an important role in facilitating ISWAP fighters and movements in and out of the Lake Chad Basin. And it would be really great to hear more about how some of these licit ventures are exploited by ISWAP. For an organization like uh, ISWAP, they are looking to expand the areas they cover. They will definitely be needing um, lots of financing. But then it's good to mention that there's a growing connection between artisanal and small-scale mining and terrorist activities, not just in Nigeria, but in the West African region. But then, far from the Nigerian region, in other parts like in Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger, ISWAP are also interested in the extractive industries. Like recently, some Chinese nationals were kidnapped in the western part of Niger. So the fish trade in Bono states is uh, very popular in Nigeria. 
when the terror ring began and escalated, this important protein source and livelihood opportunity for many people dwindled. So it was a very viable livelihood opportunity for people who go all the way to Bono State to buy this fish. Also, we had people who were centered around smoking the fish. We had people who, of course, the fishermen who caught the fish in the first place. So it was a very fish value chain. Uh, but then when the terrorism started in 2010, it affected this industry so much. And we no longer saw this fish at some point. And even when the fish came all the way down to the south, they were quite pricey. So that affected the business significantly uh, from the people who were catching the fish to the people who were processing the fish and also the people who were involved in uh, transporting this fish down to the south where they had a very huge market. It's also reported that ISWAP effectively neutralized the biggest fish market in West Africa. That was the Baga fish market, which was situated in Borono State in Meduguri. And they went further to create major fish markets outside Nigeria, like the one they created in Kusiri in Chad. Then traders from the south of Nigeria now have to go to this market through Adamawa. So you see they have succeeded to change the dynamics of the fish trade. And they control the value chain. And what this means is that they are creating significant limitations to the local economy. Even more, I swapped control of the most fertile agrarian and aqua resources of the Lake Chad communities means that they have some level of control which they have taken advantage of. So what have they done? They have now imposed tax regimes. They collect fishing rights. They collect farming rights and so on from local people. So this means that they are like, you know, already they have created some sort of government around their activities. And what happens is that what this leads to is that they have been able to stay to a reasonable extent, stifle the ease of doing business in these areas. So an area which was once known to be economically vibrant, it's now more difficult for people to do businesses there. What you get to see more is locals who are able to stay back. And then it's more difficult for foreigners to actually assess these places for fear of um, the, the effects of the conflict because they, are, they will be more vulnerable to kidnap and other issues that the conflict brings. So the control of these parts, especially around the Lake Chad Basin by the insurgents, means that they would scare investors away and residents cannot also conduct their businesses without fear. To provide context to the economy around the level of control, ice swap weights on the fish and pepper trade, um, a report by the World Food Program noted that the combined fish and pepper trade contributed about $48 million to the Nigerian economy through exports, and this was before the insurgency. So you can imagine how, how much resources they're able to control by virtue of having a control of this particular part of the economy. No, yeah, absolutely. And, and as you rightfully mentioned, like uh, it's also changed the dynamic. And one of the changing dynamics it would be great for you to elaborate on is Climate change. In your experience, you noted um, that climate change has impacted the Lake Chad Basin and specifically violent extremism and ISWAP's operations in the region. Well, terrorism, Boko Haram, and subsequently ISWAP did not have their beginnings rooted in natural resource scarcity. So it was more of driven by religious idealism, right? It wasn't really based on natural resource scarcity. But however, as time went on, it started showing that there was some kind of relationship between the fact that the land areas around these places are drying up, and that was showing in the escalation of the activities. So what happens is climate change aids and uh, exacerbates 
the activities of these groups, especially around the Lake Chad area where droughts cause instability, is forcing the migration of people as well as increasing unemployment because people that were hitherto employed or involved in fishing and farming can no more do that because more than half of the Lake Chad has dried up and that has reduced the resources that are available to people who were fishermen or people who used to farm at the floodplain. There used to be lots of agricultural activities going on around the floodplains of the Lake Chad Basin, uh, some of which still go on today, but then not as, as it used to be because of the diminishing resources. So when you have these things happening, unemployment increasing in those areas, it increases the possibility to have more persons get recruited into these terror groups. It creates an enabling environment for the terror groups to push their narratives to people who are vulnerable as a result of diminishing resources. So climate change really is a potential threat multiplier. The relationship between resource competition and civil conflict is well established, like I said. And uh, in these areas of Lake Chad, there's need for uh, concerted efforts. Maybe if the climate change effect is mitigated, probably the conflict would reduce. Uh, to portray this relationship anyway, my PhD work showed a statistically significant relationship between climate change and conflict, specifically the violence between pastoralists and farmers. And uh, a valuable finding in this regard was that most of the conflicts that occurred in Benue and Taraba states occurred in land areas with increasing land surface temperature. So these areas uh, in the northeastern as well as the north-central part of Nigeria, not particularly around the Lake Chad. But if this is occurring at areas that are closer to the Lake Chad, then very likely the scenario is similar. So we cannot de-emphasize the other factors that foster violent extremism, like I said, like religion, ethnicity, and economic difficulties, and so on. But then it's important to note the role that climate change has played in the recent years, which are quite visible and uh, quite apparent. So, you know, we've seen that the collection of zakat by Iswap has featured in their propaganda and their official videos that they release. And could you both expand a bit more on how the collection of zakat and, and some of the actions also features in their own propaganda? Thank you very much. Zakat has been a very uh, useful approach for ISWAP to generate some of its resources. ISWAP has been noted to typically exploit gaps in governance. So what they do is they try to provide essential services in the communities under their control. So this makes it easier for them to recruit new fighters from these places. But to throw a background for the listeners, the zakat is a payment made annually under the Islamic law on certain kinds of goods and properties, and uh, it's usually used for charitable and religious purposes. So Muslims with significant wealth are mandated to give zakat every year based on the value of their savings and their goods. So the arms gathered are supposed to be redistributed to the people who are categorized as not rich people. Still on the activities of um, ISWAP with regards to Zakat, so in 2021, it was reported that the group received as much as 51.9 million naira. That was estimated around uh, $156,000 uh, between the months of March and May of 2021. What it means is that they are receiving very large sums of money from the people to carry out the activities. So as part of their propaganda plan, they recently released some pictures that was last year in 2021 of their members distributing foodstuffs to residents in the northeast area around the Lake Chad Basin. So there were pictures and videos that also surfaced of them sharing 20,000 naira to households in Gaidam and that's in Yobe State. So they, they do this uh, from time to time and the idea is to see how they can expand their support base, also, you know, get more uh, income 
are through taxes from the people. So ISWAP claims that most of the people who pay this zakat, that they do so with open heart, that is expected. But some residents noted that the collection from them was done in spite of their own numerous needs, uh, which they are yet to cater for. Uh, it was also alleged that most of whom the, the money usually did not get to the poor. So what are your final reflections and recommendations, particularly those stakeholders working in the space, on how to address some of these issues? Of course, it's uh, nice to end this conversation with uh, solutions so we don't just talk about the problems. The governments of these countries should not look purely to military means to uh, defeat these uh, groups. They must also look at improving socioeconomic livelihoods in these places. I believe there are actions they are taking already in that regard, but uh, of course there's more, more than needs to be done. There must also be synergy in the activities of the government and humanitarian organizations that all work in these areas. Uh, they should also endeavor to you know, supplement their military campaigns because this would be like a basis to weakening their infrastructure. And also, there must be intentional efforts to stifle the resources, the funds that come to these groups. Of course, if they run out of money, they would not be able to carry out uh, most of the activities, and that would go a long way to reduce their actions in the area. Finally, beyond national peace-building approaches that may already exist, uh, there's need for a harmonized regional peace-building framework. This would definitely go a long way if developed, as it will create room for more inclusivity, where you have different stakeholders working together to see that the menace of the terrorism is checked in these areas. It also creates an avenue for countries to learn from each other's experience. Uh, the framework can also include a peace-building mechanism for victim-perpetrator reconciliation and reintegration. Thank you. Um, Tanya, what about you? You have lots of experiences. Yes, we have to look at the localization of where they are, but also build resilience um, across the way. Um, and that's resilience of systems and processes and, and government institutions to be able to detect and disrupt and, and therefore prosecute, you know, any, any illicit activities that come out of that and more specifically illicit financial activities. But definitely, as mentioned earlier, for us, we look at the raising, but we also look at the movement thereof. And within those stages, there are opportunities to disrupt. But, you know, and then also another element to also think about is that we have to remember that the goal of terrorist organizations, and particularly that as SWAP, um, is long term. They're thinking about financial management in the same way any business would. So this means they're diversifying their funding streams. They're keeping track of their books. And in the case of terrorists, they're concealing their location of funds and assets um, so they're not confiscated by authorities. Across the board and transnational and regionally, you know, highly specialized investigative skills and an ability to follow the money and analyze complex cross-border financial transactions. And within that, there are significant areas of disruption. But this needs every actor within the chain to be on board from border control, um, from the financial intelligence units to be cooperating, you know, from the law enforcement themselves and, and also, you know, judges and, and prosecutors as well to be able to prosecute no matter how small the amount is looking, um, looking like in front of them um, for prosecutors to actually, uh, you know, not to dismiss cases. So there are definitely um, very many um, opportunities. I do know that the federal government of Nigeria um, is putting in place a lot of mechanisms and, and so is, you know, Chad, Niger and, and so forth to address these. And I think with capacity building and, and training, I, I do think that there are some upsides and opportunities that are available. No, thank you both. Um, extremely, extremely uh, informative, and especially for those listening and understanding that both the complexity, but also the opportunities that exist 
in addressing errors and financing. Unfortunately, it's all we have time for today, but thank you so much, Chania and Dr. Shafudi, for helping us guide through these uh, complex discussions and your valuable insights uh, in, into the topic. Please follow or subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Fatma Ahmed. Until next time, goodbye.